and continue to pray for that family through all of this. All right, Revelation chapter uh, 20. Um, I want to talk about, uh, to get started here, I want to talk about the problem of evil. And that is, uh, it's kind of like a, a title or a, a heading over an argument in the ongoing Christianity versus atheism uh, debate. And atheists argue that the presence of evil proves that there's no God. A Christian apologist respond to that, uh, that the presence of evil does just the opposite, that if there is in fact no God, there's no objective standard for morality and thus no ability to determine what is evil and what is not. And this is particularly true today in, in the context of the, the, uh, the postmodern uh, worldview that we are governed by today. But the bigger question with the problem of evil, and this is the one that the atheists are really getting after, uh, the bigger question is why God, if he exists, allows evil and its attendant effects, pain, suffering, sorrow, why God allows that to happen at all? And to that question, offer two kind of quick responses before we get into our passage today. Why does God allow evil? If God exists, why does God allow evil? Number one, we don't know why God allows evil. At the end of the day, that's a very difficult question to ask and answer. We don't know why God allows evil. Here's what I do know. It's rooted in the mystery of God. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 11, 30, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth and ri of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. I mean, his thinking is so far and away above ours. How inscrutable his ways. Who am I to say that his way is right or wrong? And then he quotes here from Job, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, Paul is quoting Job there. And Job knows a thing or two about the effects of evil in the world. We don't know why God allows evil. But here's a second thing. And this should be encouraging to us. God isn't going to allow evil to exist forever. In fact, Christ's work on the cross was the decisive blow to bring evil to an end. That blow crushed the serpent's head. Now, you and I are still down on the timeline. So even though we know that this has been accomplished in eternity, we know that evil has been crushed for eternity. It's done. But you and I are still down here on the timeline waiting for all of these things to actually play out. And we need to hang on to the promise, to the hope that God isn't going to allow evil to exist forever. And that's what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 20. God finally and completely dealing with the problem of evil. And the question for us is, will we trust him? Will we trust his plan? Will we persevere as Christians? That in essence is the book of Revelation, that we would endure, that we would persevere through all of this, that we would endure all the evil in this world. But more importantly, because we tend to think in these global terms, more importantly than enduring what's going on in the world, 
that we would be dealing with the evil that's deep in our own hearts. This, this, this matter of our hearts and how evil affects this, that should be what preoccupies us as Christians, as individual Christians, in advance of the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. So let's read uh, the first 10 verses of Revelation 20. And then we'll start working through these verses. Again, the apostle John, seeing these visions, writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, on the screen and in your notes, here's what we're going after in this message. When God finally and completely deals with the problem of evil, I will, first of all, witness the judgment of those who authored it. Witness the judgment of those who authored evil in the world. The devil and his agents are summarily dealt with in verse 1. We see it. An angel, a single angel of God. This is remarkable that a single angel of God is dispatched to take care of Satan. We think about the power of God and what might it take to actually subdue Satan. And, and what it takes is one angel with the power of God. One angel holding the key to the bottomless pit. That's the word, the Greek word abyss. We saw this back in chapter 9. This key to this great chain, the angel, verse 2, seized the dragon. Multiple descriptions of him here, so we're not wondering at all who this is. This is the devil. This is the Greek word, um, diabolos. We see he's the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, adversary or accuser. He's bound for a thousand years. We're going to come back to that thousand years thing in a moment. Verse 3, and threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it. Here's the reason why this happens, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so this thousand years is a lengthy but temporary binding that suspends Satan's deceptive influence on the world. Now notice, this happens until the thousand years were ended. Then, after that, he must be released for a little while. 
So let's talk about the thousand years. You want to talk about the thousand years? Oh, too eager. <laughs> Little too eager to talk about the thousand years. That's fine. Let's talk about the thousand years because, and I can sense in your eagerness, I know why. It's because this is one of the things that gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Christians can disagree, with, uh, disagree on so, so stridently. But it's also something we can disagree on and yet still get along still work together, still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Because our, our view of the end times should not be in a position of, of primary belief. It's, it's probably not even in a position of secondary belief, but probably very, you know, tertiary. Let's put it down to that level. We can still love each other, work together, be in the same church together, and disagree on matters of the end times. In fact, we could talk here about uh, people in the room who might have three different views of the millennium or the thousand years. There are those, in fact, of the three key views, uh, they basically fall into two categories. Those who would see the millennium or the thousand years as symbolic. Two of the views go that direction, and one of the views sees it as literal. This, those who see it symbolically believe that the thousand years of the millennium is what we're living right now, that we're in the millennium currently. And those who see it as a literal kingdom see it as a yet future event. And uh, I gave out a handout at the start of this series. It's linked in your notes so that you can go back there. If you haven't seen that before, you can review it and just see a little sketch of the three different views of this. And Revelation 20, as we come to Revelation 20 today, Revelation 20 is critical in this discussion. Now, whether you believe it's literal or symbolic or fall into one of these three different categories of what the millennium actually is, no matter where you land on it, what's important is that even with our divergent views on the specific order and nature of these visions, there's several things that we can agree on. Would you like to hear those things? Five of them. Five things that if you believe it's symbolic or literal, you can still agree on. First one is this. We can all agree Jesus is coming back. Amen? I haven't left anybody behind on that one. Secondly, Satan is still defeated. No matter what your view of the millennium is, Satan is still defeated. Thirdly, justice is accomplished, which is what we're waiting for that justice to be fulfilled, for God to right all wrongs. Thirdly, or fourthly, sorry, the people of God, no matter what you believe about the thousand years, the people of God are brought into their eternal bliss before Jesus. And finally this, no matter what you believe about the millennium, the mission in the meantime is still the same. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. So can you agree on all those things, no matter what you believe about the millennium? We've locked all those down. You need me to repeat them or well, all good? Good, we can move on. Any Christian, and I need to say this, like super gently and kindly, as kindly as I can. I took out some of the words I wanted to say here. No, I really did. Any Christian who makes a big deal of the specific order of the end times is fixating on the wrong thing. And that won't help us. If you fixate on, I got to lay out the timeline. I got to know where everything lands. It's all got to be so perfect. Every detail has to fit somewhere. None of that's going to help you glorify God. 
None of it is gonna help you accomplish the bringing of God's will to earth, which is the mission of every Christian and is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be doing. Glorify Jesus Christ and, and bring about his will on earth. And so as we have seen throughout this book, there are prophecies, as we've been studying it, there are prophecies that we have seen in Revelation that have already been fulfilled in the past. There are prophecies that we've seen that are being fulfilled currently. We can look at stuff and go, you know what? Some of this stuff is happening right now, and it absolutely is. And we can look at it and go, you know what? That hasn't happened yet. And we're still waiting for this final fulfillment of the thing that we're reading here. And sometimes in the very same passage, we're seeing past, present, and future all at the same time. Now, every indication, having said that, every indication in my study is that the thousand years have yet to be fulfilled and are a literal earthly age, though not necessarily a precisely a thousand years. With all the symbolism of numbers in the book of Revelation, we wouldn't necessarily say it has to be an exact thousand years. It's a long time. It's a temporary time. And it's a, and this is what a 1000 communicate. It's a perfect time. It's exactly what God designed the time to be. It's a literal earthly age in which Christ will reign on earth and Satan will be bound. We could say that Satan is partially bound right now, but he's not fully bound. Satan has never, in fact, never in any age been able to do exactly what he wants to do. He's always been limited. And if you want to see an argument for that, go to Job chapter 1 and read the first chapter and see how God limits Satan. But you and I can agree on this. It's pretty obvious that Satan is not currently bound which means a symbolic view that we're currently in this millennial age where Satan is bound doesn't seem to make sense. Satan is very alive and well and influencing this world. Evil is pervasive in the world. Satan's not currently bound the way verse 3 describes. He's active in, in to use the phrase from the passage, he's active in, in, in fact, deceiving the nations. We look at the nations around us. You watch the news? Anybody watch the news? You watch the news? The nations are deceived. Would you agree with that? I mean, I watch the news as much as I can stomach. And I get so frustrated by what I hear in the news about governments, you know? Anybody else get frustrated by governments? It's okay. This is a safe place. I get frustrated with, with governments. I, I, I think of so many things to tweet. But I do not tweet them. I just think them. It's Christ in me. It's helping me grow. But I get frustrated with governments. But then I need to remember, my frustration is not with presidents, prime ministers, and premiers. That's just what's on the surface. Those presidents and prime ministers and premiers have been deceived by Satan, and he's the enemy, not them. That's what I need to remember. 
We're anticipating the day when Satan will be bound and confined forever. But what we're seeing here in Revelation 20 is this two-stage final judgment of Satan, who is in fact the author and evil, author of evil and sin. And God is describing for us here the end of the one who provoked the war in heaven in the first place. We saw that back in chapter 12. We're right in this heavenly battle, this warfare that took place when Satan rebelled against God's good rule. A war in heaven ensued in which the great dragon Satan was thrown down to earth. And then there's this description in chapter 12 that's almost identical to the description we have of Satan here. Now, this is all wonderful news, and it's wonderful to kind of learn this stuff. But if we're going to study the word of God, if we're going to find application that's going to matter to us today beyond just filling our minds, we need to step it back and ask one of the most basic Bible study questions you can ask when you're studying the Bible is always to step back and ask the question, why did God give us this vision? In other words, why did the Holy Spirit inspire the original author to write this to that original audience? Why do we have this? The answer isn't that complicated. It, it rarely is. The answer here isn't hard. We need to know, we needed to know that God has a plan. We need to know it. We need to know that God has this all under control. We need to know that all of this is, is going to be brought to a full completion. We need to know that the plan that he first spoke about in the garden, in the moments after the serpent deceived Eve, we need to know that that plan is going to be brought to an end. This is in fact the message of hope that we need as we navigate a world that is following Satan headlong into the abyss. That's where this world is going. And God is not going to let this go on forever. He has a plan. He's working it out. And that is our hope. It's our only hope. And we should tell everyone about it. In fact, moving on to the next point here, we'll experience the vindication of its victims. As evil is being pushed out, we're going to experience. This is the one thing our heart longs for uh, more than anything, uh, apart from seeing Jesus himself, is to experience the vindication of its victims, the vindication of evil's victims. There's, there's no doubt as you think about it. In one sense, we're all victims. In one sense, we're all victims. But there's no doubt that some people in this life are given an easier ride. There are a lot of people who live a very charmed life and they go through life and hardly any bad things ever happen to them. They have the normal bad things, but they live a good life. They finish up their life. They have family and friends all around them when they pass. And others suffer through much more difficulties throughout the entirety of their life. And for those believers who suffer injustice in this life, God promises vindication. We've seen... That theme, in fact, throughout Revelation, but it comes to its climactic conclusion right here in chapter 20. Verse 4, John saw thrones, and he saw those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And Paul fills in a little gap for us here, a little bit of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 6-2, where he tells us that the ones who are on the thrones are actually the believers, the saints. So it's you and me sitting on these thrones 
of judgment in eternity. Then standing before these judges, notice the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And that's a phrase that we've seen earlier in the book. Chapter one, verse two talks about the testimony of Jesus and and the word of God. This group, notice further, includes those who had not worshiped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Despite, they'd done this, despite all the pressure to do so. Despite all of the threats and all of the violence, they stayed faithful. Now, hopefully in that, what you're seeing is the injustice of having to suffer through something in this life, even though these people had remained so faithful to Jesus. They had been tempted to give up Jesus. Your life will be easier if you give up Jesus. And then their life becomes so very hard precisely because they love Jesus. Stood for his word. They didn't waver in their testimony. And, And every one of us knows, even as I say that, that sounds unjust. They lost everything. They lost their family as their family scorned them for believing in Jesus. Their friends abandoned them. They lost their wealth, their livelihoods, their jobs. They lost their freedom. They suffered under physical and emotional, mental torment. They were imprisoned, beaten, and shamed for simply loving Jesus Christ and pledging to follow him no matter what, even to the point of death. They sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. And I wonder, because that's such a simple song. It's been around for so long. We, we sing that song. And I wonder if we really understand the implications of singing those lyrics. It's just a nice little song. A nice little song that could send you to your death if you're serious about it. They sang it. Throughout Revelation, in fact, we've seen how this group of particularly faithful believers, because this isn't just about the martyrs, but how this, this, this specific group of particularly faithful believers actually represent all of those who are in Christ. They represent you and me. They're simply, they're simply the MVPs of the Christian life. They're the all-stars of the Christian life. They're the ones we think of first and most. They're simply the best example of what it means to be a Christian. They are the consummate Christian, not by our standard of that, because I think we're messed when we think about the consummate standard of what makes a a good Christian. I I think we're messed on that. But by God's standard, these are the consummate example of what a Christian ought to be. But even in the moment, you got to think about these martyrs, even in the moment, Even the martyrs may have wondered if God had abandoned them. And this is where I really start to relate with them. 
sometimes we wonder in the midst of our own trials, don't we? Sometimes we wonder if God has forgotten about us. God, God, I've been faithful to you. Do you see what's going on here? God, have you forgotten me? God, are you hearing my prayers? God, are you with me? I mean, how many of us have been in that situation? I can hardly imagine that anybody who has been through a difficult season hasn't at some point called out to God and said, hey, hey, you see what's going on here? And I wonder if these martyrs cried out and, and pled with God the same way the psalmist did. King David in Psalm 13, verse 1, just listen to this. How long, O oh Lord? How long am I going to go through this? Will you forget me forever? Do you even know what I'm going through? Have you prayed that prayer? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I'm in torment here and I feel like I'm alone. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Whoever that enemy is, the author of whatever the evil is that's in your life is Satan. That's like a series of questions to God. But then in Psalm 26, verse 1, the psalmist comes right out and asks for what he or she wants. Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me. I'm suffering unjustly. Why? Why should God vindicate this psalmist? He tells him why. Because I have walked in my integrity. I've been faithful. I've been a good Christian. I've, I've followed you as best I can. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So why am I going through this? Why am I suffering this injustice? By the way, no time to go into it right now, but a great exercise for this afternoon is go back to Psalm 13, go back to Psalm 26, and read the resolution to both of these psalms because they're brought to a very wonderful, amazing um, worshipful place as each of the psalmists turns their heart toward God. Now, here's the thing. Again, we're saying this all throughout. This isn't simply about the martyrs. This is about me and you. It's about where we live and what we're going through in the, the scriptures. These scriptures are written to us. We, we can look at all of this and, and also see God's overall justice, the way in which the world will be judged for abandoning all aspects of God's righteousness. We want to see him responding to the things that have broken our hearts in this life. And I could talk about a lot of different examples of that, but I thought of just one. One aspect of, of matters of injustice that just grips my heart every time I think about it. And that is the effect of sin, the effect of evil in this world on children. Who are, without a doubt, the most victimized group, people group in human history. See, what we want to see in this is, is this principle that God will right every wrong. 
when, we, when we're crying out for him to vindicate, that's what we're crying out for. God, we need you to right every wrong. And so as we think about this, the effect of evil on children, if you believe as I do, and I want to say this very carefully so that you hear me, and I might even say it twice, if you believe as I do that the scriptures teach that those who have not yet reached the age of accountability or those who are mentally unable to make a decision regarding faith will be mercifully brought into the kingdom apart from a profession, personal profession of faith. So I read it again? I want to make sure you have it, though it is on video. If you believe as I do that the scriptures teach that those who have not yet reached the age of accountability or those who are mentally unable to make a decision regarding faith will be mercifully brought into the kingdom apart from a profession of faith in Christ. If you believe that, then the implication is that eternity will be quite full of children. Quite full. Every single one of them vindicated from an injustice that was brought upon them. Think about the implication. Every child aborted in eternity. Think of that. Every child who has died of starvation because of the selfishness of governments. Every child who has died in slavery doing child labor because of our need for wealth and for gadgets and for things. Every child who has died at the hands of warmongers. Every child who has died in a concentration camp. Every child who has died as the victim of abuse, neglect, poverty, and disease. God will vindicate. God will bring about his justice in the world. For every single child. And all of this, all of this evil perpetuated on children. But on all of us, all of this is the result of evil in the world. And God will vindicate evil's victims. Notice the martyrs partway through verse 4. Notice how this comes about. The martyrs, verse 4, came to life, were resurrected, reanimated, and reigned with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, this is now the unsaved dead who will be judged in the latter part of chapter 20. These did not come to life or were not reanimated until the thousand years were ended. Because what we're seeing here, according to the verse, is the first resurrection of the believing dead, not the, not the second resurrection of the unbelieving dead. Then we have this benediction that comes on the believing dead, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who believes, who confesses their sin, who followed Jesus, who endured through all of this. Over such... The second death has no power. First death is physical death. The second death is spiritual death, eternal death. But instead, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for this thousand years. And the bottom line is here, God will vindicate. God will right all wrongs. And as Paul says, he does this. This is in Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped. We just want to shut the world up. Want to shut Satan up. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. But before we get there, which again is a future hope for us, still down on the timeline, still waiting for this to play out, okay? Before we get there, he will give us what we need, because now we're going to apply this right now to our own lives. 
Give us what we need to resist its ongoing deception. Resist evil's ongoing deception. Because in some measure, as I said already, we're all victims. We're all victims of evil in the world. We're all victims of evil in the world because we've all inherited Adam's nature, Adam's sin nature. Sin passed to all humanity because of Adam. So we're all sinners. We're all victims of that. And because we're all sinners, we're all under the condemnation of death. And on his very face, that's unjust because we were created in the image of God. God looked at what he had created and he declared it to be very good. That was the creation of humanity, of the man and the woman. And so it's very unjust that evil then crashed in and destroyed God's good creation. That's what Jesus came to correct, to restore the creation as it once was. And Revelation should be helping us see this unseen warfare, this spiritual war that's going on inside of us that we're engaged in every single day as we face the onslaught of Satan's deception. In fact, under the category of know your enemy, it's so smart that when you're at war that you know your enemy. Under the category of know your enemy, Satan's one and only tool for hurting us is deception. In fact, if we think of in terms of the big three, what human beings really want in their life, the big three, what every human being is seeking, identity, destiny, and purpose, every human being is seeking these three things. Who am I? The answers to these questions. Who am I? Where am I going? And what am I doing here? Every single human being is asking these questions. Maybe not explicitly, maybe not even consciously, but in their actions, in their values, in what they're pursuing, in the things they like, they think about, they make their life about, they're answering these three questions. And Satan, largely through the world system that's around us, the world system that we live in, but also capitalizing on the weakness of our own flesh or the inherent human frailties that each of us suffers from. Satan deceives us in these ways into thinking that we can answer these three questions in some other way other than through Christ. We think that we can find our identity in something other than Christ. We think we can find our purpose in someone other than Christ. We think we can find our destiny in something other than Christ. And so we all, everybody, all human beings become victims of this. Three times in this passage, we see Satan described in this way. He, he's, he's taken out by God, verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer because that's his thing. After the millennium, verse 8, he will come out to do what? He's going to come out. He's just been trapped for a thousand years. He's going to come out. What's he going to do? First thing he's going to do, he's going to deceive the nations. And then verse 10, at his final judgment, he is called the devil who had deceived them. Jesus called him out, said this in John chapter 8 about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. This is who he is. Jesus said, for he's a liar. And the father of lies, the author of evil. Now let's just focus on one of these three things. Identity, destiny, purpose. Let's talk about identity. Let's talk about how or the areas in which Satan lies to us about our identity. 
Because we go after all kinds of other things to try and define who we are as human beings. And I'm going I'm to dispel the lies right now and tell you that your identity is not based on your gender. Your identity is not based on your sexuality. Your identity is not based on your age, whether young or old or somewhere in between. Your identity is not your ethnicity. It is not your nationality. Your identity is not your socioeconomic status. Your identity is not your education. It is not your job. Your identity is not your marital or family status. Your identity is not your ability. It is not your disability. It is not your health. It is not your illness. Your identity is none of those. But we, we run after these labels. We apply them to ourselves, both positively and negatively. We make our entire life about these matters of identity. And when you find your identity in any of these things, you're believing a lie of the devil. Instead, we'll see our identity become crystal clear in chapter 21 when we come before the throne of God as his dear children, and we find out very simply that our identity is this. We are His. It's no more complicated than that. We are His. We are His people. We are Christ's for all eternity. I could say very similar things about purpose. Our purpose in life, whatever else you might think it is, is to glorify God. That's our purpose. That is the chief end of humanity. Every human being. Whatever else you do, it has to be something that glorifies God. Whatever you think your destiny is, to be wealthy, to retire young, to have such and such a family, to live in a certain place that doesn't have winter. That's not your identity. You're going to be with him. That's your destiny. You're going to be with him. And that informs everything else. Resist evil's deception. And then enjoy freedom from it forever. God's two-stage destruction of Satan seems entirely unnecessary to me. As I look at this, God catches him and then lets him go and, and, and lets him deceive again. And I go like, why? Why? Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. God, you let him out. Why would God do this? What's the point of letting him out? We know he's evil. He's condemned. God himself has said so. Why the two-step? Why let him out? We know he's a deceiver. Jesus said it himself. He's a liar. Why? With all due respect to the Lord. Why the dog and pony show? Capture him, bind him, enjoy that for a while, then let him out, out again to see what happens. We know what happens. Satan comes out. He deceives, verse eight, he deceives the nations and he gathers them for battle. A huge number of them. 
in the millennium, you have believers and unbelievers, even though it's under the rule of Christ and part of the kingdom, there's still believers and unbelievers who are part of the millennial kingdom who are there in the thousand years. So Satan gets out, he gathers them, he deceives them again. He gathers them for battle, a huge number. Verse nine, they march up, they surround the saints, the camp of the saints, the beloved city, Jerusalem. But then before the battle even starts, God destroys them. What was that about? Why do we even let this happen? Fire comes down from heaven, consumes them. It's all done in a second. There isn't even a fight. The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night for an ever and ever. And we, we go, we breathe a sigh of relief at this point because finally we got to this point. It's over. But I'm still left with the question. Why? Why did we let him out? I needed someone smarter than me to answer the question. So I let George Eldon Ladd do that. He has three names. He sounds smart. But several of the commentators that I've been using in this series, Osborne, Fanning, say the same thing. Lad said it so well here. Even after Christ himself has reigned over humanity during the millennium, when the deceiver is set free from his prison, he finds people's hearts still responsive to his seduction. This makes it plain that the ultimate root of sin is not poverty or inadequate social conditions or an unfortunate environment. It's rebelliousness of the human heart. The millennium and the subsequent rebellion of humanity will prove that people cannot blame their sinfulness on their environment or unfortunate circumstances. In the final judgment, the decrees of God will be shown to be just and righteous. See, God allows this last gasp from Satan so that there is no doubt about the insidious nature. There's no doubt for you and me as we read this about the insidious nature of sin and evil. Not just in the world, because that's the thing we like to talk about. Oh, the evil in the world. Oh, the world is so bad. But our biggest problem is our own heart, isn't it? It's us. This is a warning to us. Revelation 20 is a warning to us. It's a warning to us to decisively deal with the sin so that we could enjoy freedom from it, not just in eternity, not this forever freedom that's just a promise of something in the future, something when we pass from this life, but that we would enjoy freedom from sin, freedom from evil as much as possible now by living a righteous life. God does want to deal with the problem of evil. And again, we think of that so often in the global terms. But God wants to deal with the problem of evil in your very heart, will you heed the warning? Let me pray for us. Father, the weight of these uh, scriptures continues to um, be so obvious as we study through this book. And Father, we know we need to come to you uh, sober-mindedly, seriously with the heart that's open to hear all the things that apply, not just in the broad sense of this world, but the things that apply in our own lives now. And Father, there's no doubt 
again, in my mind as, as we work through something like that, that there are small rebellions in every Christian's heart that can become big rebellions. So God, I pray that we would repent of these things, that we would be hearing and heeding your word today to root out evil, to stop believing the lies of the evil one. To live now as, as best we can in the fullness of the freedom that you've provided through Jesus Christ. So God, do that work deep in each one of our hearts as believers. And Father, for those who are hearing my voice who have not yet committed their life to Christ, and I can't understand why they wouldn't. I plead with your Holy Spirit right now to move in the hearts of those that are watching or those who are in the room, Father, who have not yet surrendered to Christ, that in this movement, even this moment, even as I'm praying, God, they would turn their life over to Christ, confess their sins, and devote themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, these things we pray in his strong name.